Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 18th, 2014. I'm show host Michael Welch. On this special holiday edition of the Global Research News Hour, we salute the 44th annual Earth Day with a speech given in Winnipeg recently by outspoken anti globalization author, environmental activist, and eco feminist Dr. Vandana Shiva. Born in Dehradun, India, in the foothills of the Himalaya, Shiva got her training at the University of Western Ontario in Canada as a physicist. In 1982, she shifted her focus to interdisciplinary research in science, technology, and environmental policy and moved back to India. Dr. Shiva is the founder of Navdanya, a participatory research initiative dedicated to the preservation of native crop species, the rejuvenation of indigenous culture and knowledge, and to support and direction for environmental activism. She's the author of more than 20 books, including Soil Not Oil, Environmental Justice in an Age of Climate Crisis, Stolen Harvest, The Hijacking of the Global Food Supply, Earth Democracy, Justice, Sustainability and Peace, and Staying Alive, Women, Ecology and Development. She's the recipient of numerous awards and accolades, including the 1993 Right Livelihood Award, or the Alternative Nobel, and the 2010 Sydney Peace Prize. On March 29, 2014, Dr. Shiva spoke at the North Centennial Community Centre in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, at the invitation of a local collective known as Powerhouse Producers, in association with the Women's and Gender Studies Students Association and the University of Winnipeg's Women's Centre. Her speech followed a so-called Feast of Forgotten Foods, which highlighted a meal prepared by local activists with organic ingredients all provided by local farmers for an audience of about a 100 people. Preceding the talk was an announcement about a bill moving through the Canadian House of Commons known as Bill C-18, the Agricultural Growth Act, which critics argue undermines traditional farm practices by ensuring the intellectual property rights over new varieties of seeds to the plant breeders that generate them and force farmers to pay a royalty to them when crops from those seeds go to market. Here now is Dr. Vandana Shiva speaking on Earth Democracy. We are truly in a very deep crisis at the planetary level, but definitely in terms of the food system. Yesterday when I was traveling to Winnipeg, I picked up, it's a very trashy paper. You know, USA Today, by and large, has no news in it. But yesterday's newspaper actually had news. It talked about autism rates jumping again. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the big U.S. body that monitors disease, has said that in two years, the figure of autism has jumped from 1 in 88 to 1 in 68. And since most classes are 68, they're saying, by and large, in every class, there's an autistic child. And then they go on to say, obviously, this is a trend that uh, is showing something's wrong, whether something in the environment could be causing the uptick remains the million-dollar question. That question's been answered. If you look at the graph of the growth of GMOs, the growth of the application of glyphosate, and autism, 
It's literally a one-to-one -one correspondence. And you could make that graph for kidney failure. You could make that graph for diabetes. You could make that graph even for Alzheimer's. And there's no new literature coming out. Now, we know, as far as the environmental issues are concerned, that the industrial model of farming is destroying the planet. And I've not been surprised with the fact that it is, because in 1984, when in India, we had two major disasters. The first was the emergence of early extremism. A lot of people are made to believe that uh, terrorism began with 9-11. No, in Punjab, we were having shootings and killings and bombings. 30,000 people had been killed. I'd done my MSc in particle physics at the Punjab University just 10 years before. And all this violence had erupted after that. Punjab is, means the land of the five rivers. Punj is five, Ab is water. Most prosperous land of India. This is where the Green Revolution was applied. And the Green Revolution was applying chemicals to the new seeds. It isn't that they hadn't started to apply chemicals before, but it wasn't working. In fact, the chemicals in agriculture were attempted to be introduced from the beginning of the century. But those enlightened colonizers arrived in India, and there's a particular name I would recommend you all to read his book, The Agricultural Testament, which is called The Bible of Organic Farming. Albert Howard is sent to India to improve Indian agriculture with chemicals. He says, I arrive, I see no pests in the field, I see the soils are fertile, and I decided to make the pest and the peasant my professors. And then he writes this book, The Agricultural Testament, learning from nature. He was sent to start a new research institution. And he says every department was wrong because they weren't working with nature. They weren't working with the understanding of how pests actually get controlled. And then we had the wars where chemicals exploded. Some were made, like the sarin gases or early glyphosates, were made to kill in concentration camps. They continued to be developed for the war. Herbicides, like Agent Orange, were used in the Vietnam War. These were war chemicals. And after the war, those factories should have closed down. But those who had got used to making big money, selling war chemicals, weren't going to give up in a hurry. You just have to look at the names of chemicals. Roundup itself, squadron, avenge, attack. These are the names of pesticides and herbicides. In my new book on, that I'm writing right now on who really feeds the world, I have a whole page. I started to copy the names and the page kept growing. And there's not a single name that talks about ecological processes and ecosystems. It's all about attack and avenge. As if 
nature is at war with us. Beneficial species are getting killed. Butterflies and bees are getting killed. As I said, they should have wrapped up after the war, but they got too addicted to profits. They'd also got addicted to telling lies to make profits. I remember in the 50s, they tried to introduce chemical fertilizers and it didn't work because our native seeds grow in a balanced way and the mineral fertilizers have instant uptake and they make the plant grow in an imbalanced way. So there's a problem with chemical fertilizers that plants lodge. Lodging is where they fall over if there's a little bit of rain or a little bit of wind. I call the lodging the plant's satyagraha. Satyagraha is Gandhi's word for the force of truth. And the plants were saying, don't want these chemicals. So what did they do? They re-engineered the plant, turned it into a dwarf with a thick stem. The oldest stores are so delicate. The straws of the dwarf varieties are so thick, the cattle can't eat it as straw. You can't thatch your roof. If you try and thatch your roof, the rain's going to pour, pour through. Um, a whole part of the plant that is the only part we give back to the earth, because we eat the grain. The straw went to all other bees. The straw went to the animals. The straw went to the earthworms. The straw went to the microorganisms. And suddenly, you've created a situation where you're calling Varieties that starve the planet, high-yielding varieties. The UN has said they should never have been called high-yielding because they're not high-yielding in and of themselves. You don't have the right amount of irrigation, you're going to have zero production, 2009. I've watched that happen. We had such a severe drought across the country. And wherever people were waiting to plant the new varieties, there was nothing in the field. Wherever farmers who work with us were growing their ancient varieties and using organic methods, the fields were full. The rain hadn't come, but the soil still had moisture because that straw is what holds the moisture. There's a brilliant Japanese farmer who's no more, and he had come and taught at our school, and in fact, one of our huts on the farm is called the Fukuoka hut. Fukuoka wrote a brilliant book that has been an inspiration to people around the world, One Straw Revolution. And it's basically about what you give back to the earth and the soil. You have these war chemicals that have to get spread and they come from the war, they kill people. But you pretend you know exactly which species they're going to wipe out. 1984, that same year, where in Punjab we had violence even though the Green Revolution had been given a Nobel Peace Prize. Norman Borlaug, they just had a, they put up a statue in Washington and the press asked me, what do you think of it? I said, well, if you honor a man who destroyed our soils, finished off our water, created violence in Punjab, has uh, created a cancer train, because of the chemical use and the pesticide use, then put up that statue. But that means you're honoring violence against the earth and violence against people. And if you want to honor those who take care of the earth and actually provide more food, 
then you can't have one statue because you will have to have billions of people. Billions of the harvesters, billions of the small gardeners, billions of the small farmers, and even today half of the world is farmers. In countries like mine, 765%. Uh, a lot of African countries, 80-90%. Most of the world is involved in producing food. But we are made to believe it's those five corporations that feed us. Nothing could be further from the truth. More than 70% of the food comes from small farms today. If you measure food that's traded, you only think of the big companies. But if you look at the food that's eaten, it comes from the small producers. Today's dinner, there is no way global statistics can count it. It's too diverse, it's too local, none of this exists. Global statistics has reduced our food base to eight globally traded commodities. Eight. We used to eat 8,500 species of plants across different cultures. Now we're trading in Ada. Are those feeding the world? No. 90% of the corn and soya, most of it is now genetically modified, 90% is not being eaten as food. 90% is either biofuel to drive cars or animal feed. Did animals want to eat grain? Yeah. Animals want grass. That's why they call herbivores. And we had a brilliant system, you know, we, we took the grain, the grass, the straw was the animal. And because there's such huge profits in the feed industry and such huge profits in the factory farming and I call them animal prison industry. In the early days, because animals that have four stomachs, you know, they're used to roughage and go through four stomachs, you won't believe how they used to do, uh, try and adjust the animals to eat this intensive feed which has no roughage, just little pellets. You know you have those iron and plastic scrubbers for the kitchen? They used to put scrubbers into the stomachs of the animals so the animal would feel this roughage. And at so many levels, industrial agriculture is based on violence of every kind. I remember when in the early days when industrial sh uh, fish farming and shrimp farming was just starting. And in those days, I had the Brundtland chair in Norway. There was a PhD being done on how to get shrimp to lay their eggs in captivity. Because just like the plants rebel against cap uh, chemicals, the shrimp rebelled against captivity. They like to swim in the ocean. The way to do it is pull the eyes out. And a thesis was being done on it. And it's not that that pregnant shrimp would not lay those many eggs in the ocean. But then they wouldn't be available to the industry. So they make these ponds and they force this 
shrimp to lay the eggs, then they pump it with antibiotics and stock it as a monoculture. Ten times more fish has to be caught in the sea as feed to produce the shrimp. And they call it efficient. You're wasting 90% of the fish and you're calling it a more efficient system. This morning, I was being interviewed by Ian, uh, who wanted a comment from me on the new insanity. I don't know why. You know, the Canada where I studied in the 70s was a Canada of solidarity. It was a Canada of responsibility. It was a Canada of democracy. Today, it has become the dumping yard for everything that's not allowed anywhere else in the world. So, you know, the genetically modified salmon, even the Americans haven't allowed it for 20 years. 19 years they've been trying to get it approved. The company calls itself Aqua Bounty. And what are they going to do? They're going to have the eggs in a farm in Prince Edward Island. Then they're going to ship it all the way to Panama to grow the fish. And then they'll ship it all back for you to eat. I was quickly just reading through the impact assessment of your regulatory agencies. They're admitting that this salmon would need more feed. Which again means it's wrong to count more production in the salmon because you're going to lose more fish, you'll have to feed it. It's a negative system. They say it's very safe to grow it in the farms in Panama because they have built the farm at the headwaters of a river. How can the headwaters be a safe place? Because if there's contamination, it goes all the way down the river and into the ocean. I think what we're dealing with, in terms of what's going on with the food system, is really a kind of insanity. A very destructive and a very violent insanity. It has to be insanity to say, oh, pesticides were bad. They caught up with us. Now, let's just put the pesticide-producing genes into the plant and let the plant produce poison in every cell all the time and spread that through contamination to related crops. This is exactly what Bt GMOs are, Bacillus thuringiensis, producing pesticide in the plant. And the other one, Roundup-resistant, also, a crazy idea. Take a plant, make it resistant to Roundup, and let the Roundup kill everything else that would be food. I've done studies on Indian farms. Women will use 250 wild species that grow in the farm. Some of these are amazingly nutritive. When I taught in Bangalore, women would go down our street, saying sapu, sapu, sapu. And on their heads they'd be carrying baskets of amaranth. 10, 20, 30 kinds of amaranth that they had harvested 
as spontaneous plants in their field. Amaranth has about 20,000 micrograms of vitamin A, equivalent in 100 grams. Of course, when you spray weedicide, out goes your vitamin A, out goes your iron. So now you have another insanity. Let's do a golden rice and let the golden rice produce 35 micrograms of iron. Hundreds of times less efficient than available sources of vitamin A. And those who would create scarcity talk about solving the problem of blindness. I've called with golden rice the blind approach to blindness prevention. And, and, and you in Canada have a, a man who travels to Europe pretending he was Greenpeace till yesterday and loved ecology, and now he's suddenly woken up to the benefits of GMOs. And this is his. You know the man. Exactly. You know there are about 10 of them. I, I wish some young person would do a campaign on the 10 mouthpieces. And I can help you with it. Because I get, you know, they, they're constantly writing about me, against me. So I have a neat little list. They've just, you know, last year Forbes identified me as one of the seven most powerful women of the world. And the same Forbes, <laughs> the same Forbes, I think, got so panicky, they've now written a piece, Vandana Shivanti GMO celebrity, eco-goddess or dangerous fabulist. <laughs> and the main reason they are so troubled is I've been appointed chair in, in, in a college. So they're keeping, like with a microscope, they're looking. Oh, she's going there, let's attack the college. How could, how could the college make her a chair? And I say, if this is the way you have to spend your time, then you're already finished. It's over for you. So the GM rice uh, doesn't deliver iron. They now have a an iron banana. Banana has 0.44 milligrams of iron. They say, oh, you know, in 15 years' time, if you give us millions of dollars, we might take it to two or three times more. Okay, you'll take it to two. If you had an Indian curry with that turmeric, it's 68 units compared to 0.44. If you've had a little bit of tamarind, it's more. The same amaranth, the sehajan, diversity, as we've tasted in the feast today, is able to provide everything we need. It is because agriculture has been reduced to monocultures, and because agriculture has been reduced to chemicals, that our food is today nutritionally empty mass. So we don't measure quality, we don't measure nutrition. What's measured is how much weight does it have. And I know farmers who will wait to see when is the wheat going to be sold. We have in India a system called mandis. So they wait to see when will the mandis start buying. And they come and harvest their wheat or their rice that day. Because with chemical farming, so much of the weight is water. Because of intensive irrigation. And they know the weight will come down if they let it sit for a day or two. 
But it's because so much is water, you get more pests, you get more fungal diseases, the storage is bad. I encouraged farmers to start saving old varieties. You know, when I started Navdanya in 87, I started it because the corporations laid out their grand plan. And their grand plan was to own every seed on this planet. And they were honest enough at that time to say the only way we can take a patent is through genetic engineering because now we can pretend we've done something new. In fact, in those early days, this used to be called novel organisms and novel foods. The laws that you were being framed were on novel foods. But at the same time, when you ask the corporations, okay, if it's novel, what's the impact? They say, no, 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 just like nature made it. Substantial equivalence. I call this ontological schizophrenia. When you want to own the seed as your property to collect royalties, you say, I have invented something new. I'm the inventor, creator, maker, give me the royalty. And we've started to say GMO should be God move over. We are the creators. We will collect the rents. When it comes to safety and the impact of that same transformation, they say, no, just like nature. Nature's have been doing genetic engineering forever. I was just reading another fascinating paper. So I, we don't know why people are worried about genetic engineering. After all, we eat DNA every day. <laughs> you don't eat transgenes every day. And over the years, you know, but it's not different from the yogurt your grandmother made cheese. It's biotechnology. It's all one. Breeding. Traditional breeding, selection, conventional breeding within a species is just the same as taking a gene from an unrelated organism and putting it into a plant. The early days, of course, you had, I remember there was a doctor He was called Dr. Bishop. He had put scorpion genes into cabbage. It was research in Cambridge. And when I asked, I said, so what about the scorpion genes in terms of people eating this? You know, I, I'm only working on how to control pests. The impact of what happens to you is not my project. And that's part of the problem. When everything's driven by money and everything's driven by funding, it is all reduced to a project. So now you have projects on changing the planet through geoengineering. And this has got to send the sun off. Sun's a big problem. The fact that the sun shines on the earth, that's the reason we have climate havoc. So put reflectors in the sky, create artificial volcanoes, put giant pipes up into the sky, or send aeroplanes and let them introduce aerosols and pollutants. That's what they're doing. And so we would engineer the planet out of the climate crisis. So I asked one of these, how come it's always Canadians? There was another Canadian supporting you. you know? On a, it was a, um, in a democracy now, and he just written a book. Again, you'll remember the name. The fact, the good thing is, the crazies are very few, so we we get to know their names. 
<laughs> what happens to the plants when they don't get sun? How will you have photosynthesis? Not my department. <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, life is not their department. Life is nobody's department, even when they call themselves life sciences. It's called the life sciences industry. This messing up of the planet at the genetic level is being called the life sciences industry. I call it the death peddling industry. It was death peddling when it started in chemical warfare. And when people ask me, but you've never been so critical of other corporations. I said, we weren't dealing with war criminals in the same way. These were the same companies that were tried in the Nuremberg trials. And I'm going to organize Nuremberg trials on them. The mayor of Nuremberg has agreed. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and out of affiliate stations across Canada, the United States, and around the world. The program is aired and podcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm and is podcast at globalresearch.ca. Today's special holiday broadcast is dedicated to Earth Week and features renowned environmental activist, anti-globalization author, and eco-feminist Dr. Vandana Shiva. Here's more of her speech in Winnipeg on Earth democracy. If the disease pattern is exploding, if 75% bees have been pushed to extinction, if climate change, 40% comes from industrial agriculture, every indicator, ecological health-wise, you look at. It's going wrong. And all they do is, every time a scientist says, but this is what's happening, get rid of the scientists. There was a wonderful scientist in England who was asked by the UK government, which paid them 35 million pounds, say, study this GMO stuff and tell us what's going on. He wasn't an activist. He wasn't looking for anything. He was considered the world's top lectern expert. Arpat Putsai was his name. He did his work. And he found in three months of feeding trial that the brains of the rats had shrunk, the pancreas had expanded, the immunity had collapsed, and the intestinal system was totally damaged. He went to his director. They did a press conference. Within no time, a call goes from the US to the Prime Minister of England to say, get rid of this man, shut the lab. He was the first victim, because he was the first who did the study. But victims have continued. Every scientist who's done independent work on the impacts of genetic engineering has been hounded and lost their jobs. Amazing scientist at Berkeley, Ignatius Chapella, he went to study the corn in Mexico, and Mexico has not yet allowed GMOs. And he found it was contaminated with BT. He published his paper in the journal called Nature. Nature started to get these attacks. He, and Nature put a little thing, we retract this paper. This, I mean, it never used to happen before. That a published paper, peer-reviewed, then suddenly you say, I didn't publish it. Later it turned out that the public relations company that works for Monsanto 
did what is called viral marketing. They cooked up the names of scientists and sat at one computer and bombarded the magazine with letters saying, we as scientists say this is not scientifically accurate. They've done that now with one of the top scientists of France who used to be a regulator, but when he used to see the research from Monsanto, he realized it was very sloppy. He said, no, I have to find out for myself what's actually happening. First time a two-year study was done. Dr. Seralini is his name. He was looking at organ damage and he found the organ damage, liver and kidney damaged hugely. What he wasn't looking for was cancers, very high rates of tumors in the rats fed with GMOs. A scientist in Russia had found the same thing. 50% rats had tumors and the offspring that survived 50% died. Irina Ertnikova. The Monsanto and, you know, they just, literally just five of them. They have five big corporations that are controlling the state through genetic engineering and biotechnology. Um, their attitude is just shoot the messenger. Rather than withdraw a hazardous product, rather than find smarter ways to serve society, they continue to push failed products. The BT crops are not controlling pests. The Roundup Ready crops are not controlling weeds. They have given us super pests and super weeds. And we did a study two years ago, a global study. Uh, and we don't do global studies with big finances, big projects top down. Our global mobilization is just telling people everywhere, write your report. If you're a movement, write your report. If you're a scientist, write your report. And it's totally participatory and it can be done with zero budget. Zero budget. The report is on the website of Nathania. It's, and when I had to finally give a title, you know, you always feel if you're sitting in India, oh, you know, but the U.S. is doing fine. You're sitting in U.S., you say Argentina's doing very well. Otherwise, why would they be only GM soya? You put it all together, no place is doing well. At least the farmers aren't. In every place, Monsanto's doing very well because it's all about royalty collection. Let me give you the situation for India. So Monsanto came in illegally in 1988. I had to sue them in the Supreme Court because they violated every law. They didn't take any permission. They didn't go through any approval. Uh, and the only reason I came to know they're coming is because they were foolish enough to put huge ads in the newspaper. <laughs> and that's the arrogance. You come in as a crime, you come in illegally, and you show off. Anyway, to cut a long story short, today Monsanto controls 95% of the cotton seed supply in India. 95%, just in 15 years. The price of seed jumped 8,000%. The issue is not the technology. The issue is the mechanisms of total control. How does Monsanto establish total control over seed? India is a very good example. The first thing they do is go to the farmer and say, your seed is primitive, give it up. It's called seed replacement. And they have armies of employees who go to convince the farmer, your seed is primitive. The second thing they do is 
magically get the government and public sector to stop doing its work. Our Cotton Research Institute used to release about 20 varieties of cotton. Today, zero. Third thing they do is because they have such deep pockets, they get into licensing arrangements with local companies. And the companies can't sell anything but the Monsanto cotton, which is linked to royalty. So every year from India, Monsanto is extracting 1,000 crores, which amounts to 200 million annually of royalties. From Brazil, and there was a very, very big case, from Brazil they were extracting 2.2 billion for soil. 2.2 billion. The peasants have sued, and the peasants have won. Monsanto has lost the royalty case. <laughs> with, with the super profits linked to royalty collection, and the fact that the seeds are really not reliable, they aren't working to control pests. 13-fold jump in use of pesticides. In India, the farmers in the cotton areas are in a deep, deep debt trap. And so we saw a new phenomenon of farmer suicide start in India as the seed monopolies were established. And one of the things the industry keeps attacking me for is that I'm lying about the farmer suicide. And from somewhere, they've cooked up a figure of a flat line by taking national statistics. But cotton grows in four states. And if you want to see if an agrarian crisis is being triggered in the cotton areas, which are now 95% BT cotton, then you look at the cotton areas. One of the regions where we work is called Vidharva. That's the graph. And the reason it came down was the government was forced to give relief to the indebted farmers in that year. But the suicides were 52 before the GMOs were introduced. They had shot up to 1,248 by the time it was 95% GMO cotton. Now the paper from which that flat curve was taken also has the papers for the particular states where cotton is grown, but that was never picked up. We have started in this area, one of the most difficult um, processes of seed saving, because cotton seed had disappeared. So we had to travel really to remote areas to find native cotton seed. And the good thing is the native cotton doesn't cross with the American hybrid, so it can stay pure and it doesn't get contaminated. Then, of course, we've been teaching the farmers how to go organic. After that, we've been working with them to uh, get their cotton to the old uh, Gandhian ashrams where there's hand spinning and hand weaving. Then we do vegetable dyeing. Beautiful, beautiful scarves. For me, it's never been about how big you become. In fact, it's the opposite. You've got to avoid bigness. The only Thing that doesn't know how to stop growing is the cancer cell. Limitless growth is the logic of a cancer cell. And corporations have become a cancer on this planet because they don't know how to stop growing. 
Worse, they try and destroy everything that comes in the way, just like a cancer tumor destroys the body on which it is thriving. For me, it's a moral, ethical, ecological alternatives, uh, imperative to deal with what is happening to our planet and to our lives and to our freedoms. That is why I started Navdanya. That's why I started Seed Saving in 1987. And just earlier, there was the presentation on, uh, on the C-18 law that's coming here. Well, it's not just Canada. 1987, the corporation said we'll be five companies controlling the food supply and health sector of the world. Because the same companies that created the war chemicals, gave you the agri-chemicals, now have taken over the seed through genetic engineering and patenting. And then when they give you cancer, they're the same companies that have a patented cancer drug. So they can't lose. Just this morning, you know, our southern state of Karnataka has banned Monsanto Mahiko seed this year because of these repeated failures. So, of course, one of those ten names that I mentioned, you know, his master's voice, says, oh, no, 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 we don't need, uh, we don't need laws because the market will solve it all. If it's failing, the market will reject it. The problem is it isn't a market, it's totalitarian control. And every failure, every failure is a success. I realized this in 1984. I was traveling to Ethiopia, you remember? Ethiopia had that big famine in 84. And it's the same year when I was, uh, uh, you know, waking up to agriculture with Bhopal and the Punjab crisis. And on my flight, I was going from UNEP to Ethiopia to Addis, and the man sitting next to me asked, what, who am I and what am I going for? And I tried to understand the causes of the famine. And I said, and you? He was from Pioneer Hybrid, which is now owned by DuPont. And he says, going to sell hybrid seeds. But I said, they have a drought. Hybrid seeds need irrigation. He says, that's fine for us. The more we, it fails, the more we sell. So every time the BT cotton fails on the field of a poor Indian farmer in the cotton area, Monsanto makes more money because they sell not once, but twice and thrice, because there is no system of liability in this area. And you know the case of Percy Smyser in Canada, what they did, where they contaminate his crop and then say, you pay us a fine. No. They had imagined by the year 2000, everything would be GMO. From every seed planted, they would be collecting a royalty. That was their corporate vision. And because we built movements, most of the crops and most of the world is GMO-free. And that is why their new initiative is make farmers seed-saving illegal. If we can't force them to buy GMOs straight, then we force them by destroying every alternative. The C-18 is happening everywhere. I have helped the Europeans and the European Parliament to fight a law which is, doesn't even have the, have the word seed in an act that thick. It's called plant propagating material. And seed has been reduced to raw material. It's all based on uniformity. If your seed is diverse, you can't save it. 
but all farmers' seeds and local varieties have diversity built into them. It's happening across Africa. I will be traveling in two months' time to help governments and movements in Africa to fight what they call seed harmonization laws. All of this is based on two distorted ideas, which serve consolidation of power. The first distorted idea is uniformity is a measure of good seed. You know, if you put out a car, you don't want every car to have different functions. You know, they have to be standardized. Automobiles need standardization. Life needs diversity and evolution. So for those of you who are interested in this issue, go visit our website and download a not a report, it's like a manifesto we've done on the law of the seed, which we've drafted. On what are the real principles for the seed? The first principle is diversity. The second is quality. It's about nutrition and food and taste. And the third is resilience. In times of climate change, you don't want a uniform variety that will fail if there's a drought, that will fail if there's a flood, it will fail if there's a cold, and that will fail if it's too hot. So, of course, they're ready with that one too. And that is starting to patent genetically uh, climate-resilient crops. Our patent office rejected a patent application of Monsanto. You're pretending to make an invention, but there's a biology. Sorry, you won't get the patent. The United States government is threatening us, change your laws. Allow Monsanto to commit the frauds in your country as they've committed in our country. Because the Supreme Court of the U.S. ruled against a farmer who had bought seed in an elevator and grown a crop. His name is Bauman in the famous case of Monsanto versus Bauman. A similar law like C-18 was attempted to be introduced in India in 2004. And as usual, these are not in the agriculture pages. They're in the financial pages. And I read these two lines. And because the seed has taught me too much, I picked up and said, so I went and hunted up in the parliament the draft of that law. And I realized it's about imposing uniformity to create corporate monopoly, criminalize diversity, and criminalize farmers who save their seeds. I started to travel the length and breadth of the country hold meetings with farmers, explain the law, collected signatures. I took 100,000 to our prime minister. And I gave them to him. And I said, you are forgetting we are in the land of Gandhi. 1906, when they were trying to institutionalize the apartheid regime in South Africa, the Gandhi was a barrister in South Africa then, and they wanted Indians and blacks and whites segregated by race. Apartheid means separation. That's what the word apartheid means. And Gandhi said, we will not wear these badges. We will not be divided by race because we are one citizenry. We will not cooperate your, with your law. And he led the movement on non-cooperation. That's the first time he used the word satyagraha, the force of truth, because he went to jail, as did so many other Indians. But that was the beginning of the resistance against apartheid. ANC came up much later. Mandela was born 16 years later. Then Gandhi returned to India. 
the first Satyagraha he practiced was against the compulsory cultivation of indigo. We were not allowed to grow food because we had to supply indigo for dyeing to the textile industry. And then in 1930, the British said, ah, oh, we need more guns to shoot these Indians who are rebelling. Uh, and what better way to finance the oppression than to tax salt? We will make salt making a monopoly. Now we, in tropical countries, you need a lot of salt. Even in freezing countries, you need a lot of salt for the road. We need a lot of salt to replenish our salinity uh, because otherwise you're dehydrated. Gandhi walked to the beach. It's called the famous Gandhi March. Walked to the beach, picked up the salt water and said, nature gives it for free. We need it for our survival. We will continue to make salt. We will not obey our law. It's called the salt satyagraha. When I started Navdanya in 1987, I said, we've got to do two things. We've got to defend the freedom of the seed and our right to save and exchange seed. But we also have to be prepared for the day we will have to say no to the laws that are being imposed. I told our Prime Minister that. I said, you can make this law, we will not obey. They haven't yet been able to introduce that law. I want to conclude by sharing with you how over the last few years as this coercive control of this handful of criminal giants has grown. And as I mentioned, they're the same who kill people by patenting trial. And they had the cheek in our Supreme Court to say, only 15% of India is what they care about, the India that can pay for costly drugs. The rest can die of cancer and every other disease. They don't care about the farmers because their royalty doesn't come from the number of farmers, it comes from the acreage sown. And in fact, it's easier to control large acreage. So it doesn't matter how, what the cost, the social ecological cost. As I said, every failure in terms of the Earth's evolution and every failure in terms of people's needs is a success for the market. It's a success for the corporation. And having realized that they're doing the same thing everywhere, we realize it's, we have to globalize our struggle. And one of the ways we've tried to do it is create a global citizens movement for seed freedom. Seed freedom means multiple things. In, uh, in India, whenever you have to talk about the foundation of anything, you talk about the seed. So there's a Bija mantra. You must have heard people chant Om. Om contains everything else, every other sound. That bindi, I started to wear this bindi when I realized what it's about. It holds the cosmos. In this little dot is the potential for representation of everything. So there's a Bija mantra, there's a Bija yantra. Bija means the foundation. So seed freedom is the foundational freedom out of which arise all other freedoms. But seed freedom is also the freedom of the seed to evolve. After all, seed has evolved over millennia. And seed has intelligence. 
and seed will be able to deal with the future as it changes when we were coming in over we were talking about um, the spiral garden that Natalie and her friends have grown and uh, we were joking about how with all the salt from the roads you might actually have salt tolerant plants evolving <laughs> in that garden um, but nature has intelligence that's how seeds have evolved they've adapted and the adaptive capacity of seed is related to its diversity when we do the A to Z one of the top breeders of the world comes and teaches our colleagues and now he said there's only one kind of breeding left breed with the farmer breed with nature he calls it participatory breeding and evolutionary breeding he says wherever there's evolutionary breeding there is never a failure of the crop. What you need is diversity and the capacity to adapt. And then, of course, seed freedom is the farmer's freedom to save seed. And I was fortunate enough to be put on the drafting committee of our law, which was supposed to be the equivalent of the UPOV implementation. And if you read the language in WTO, it says a sui generis system. Sui generis doesn't mean UPOV. Sui generis means self-standing. So we wrote a law that articulated farmers' rights. A farmer's right to save, exchange, improve, sell seed is non-alienable. And the industry doesn't know what to do. But it's not just farmers' rights. It's the right of the eaters. If the farmers don't have quality seeds, if those plants that cook the dinner today don't exist in our ecosystem, then where can we have a right to eat diversity? Where do we have a right to eat wholesome food? Where do we have a right to know what we are eating? So seed freedom is quite clearly a very fundamental freedom. On it rests the freedom of our food. And on that rests the creation of living economies and living democracies in these times where Economies have become killing economies, killing our farmers, killing the earth, killing us with disease. And democracy, as we all witness, you have your share, we have our share, are rather dead. Because they've mutated from being of the people, by the people, for the people, to being of the corporations, by the corporations, for the corporations. So we have to create the real earth democracy. Every year from 2nd October to 16th October, we now celebrate a fortnight of freedom with laser intensity and global resonance. Acting in our own ways, but focused with the same direction. 2nd October is Gandhi's birth anniversary. And Gandhi his birth anniversary now recognized by the United Nations as the day of Satyagraha and the day of Swaraj and the day of freedom. Let's bring it into our lives. Let's recognize the laws that deserve to be not obeyed. And I would invite you to declare on October the 2nd, C18 will never be obeyed. We will save our seats. And the reason, the reason we have to disobey is both because our commitment to freedom requires it, but higher laws require it.
There are two higher laws that are being violated. The highest law of the earth, of Gaia, the rights of the earth, and the second, the higher laws of human rights, social justice. Our constitutions were meant to protect this. So we are, in fact, saying we will not obey laws that counter the laws of the earth and the laws in our constitutions, because you are violating them. Twelfth, south of the border is celebrated as Columbus Day. But indigenous people are increasingly celebrating it as Indigenous Peoples Day. You have such a strong indigenous movement led by indigenous women. I think it would be brilliant if around the world on the 12th of October we celebrate and articulate our cultures of protecting the earth, defending our freedoms and cooperating with each other. The values that have been forgotten by the rich and the powerful everywhere. Again, a remembering of what human beings are capable of. Because we are being told we are not capable of taking care of ourselves. We are not capable of creating and producing. We are not capable of thinking. We are not capable of being free. So look out and share with us your idea so we can just spread it as an amazing network of self-organization but connected and finally 16th of October is World Food Day this year is the year of family farming it's basically the year of autonomy it's the year where we need to honor every plant all our grandmothers, our knowledge the real producers of food last year Monsanto and friends gave themselves the uh, the World Food Prize. And that's when I realized we've got to have our own honoring. Not of one person, not of one corporation, but everyone who against all odds is creating a good food system, a just food system, a loving food system. And you are all heroes doing that. Thank you. You've been listening to a speech given by Dr. Vandana Shiva at the North Centennial Community Center in downtown Winnipeg. The talk took place on the 29th of March in 2014. This talk can be accessed on the web. Just go to the website globalresearch.ca and find the link to where the Global Research News Hour programs are archived. This program was produced at the CKUW studio in Winnipeg by me, Michael Welch. Join us again next week for another installment of the show. Bye for now.